Thanks for downloading, thanks for streaming, thanks for listening to Coming Up Next, the podcast with me, Alistair Marks. Whether you're first-time listening or whether you are a long-time listener, you can help keep this show rolling on the airwaves by heading to iTunes, Stitcher or Podbean, however you listen to this, giving it a five-star rating and a review. I know it seems like a a weird and silly thing, um, but it really does help to keep the show's momentum rolling on. Also, make sure you hit subscribe, and that way it's going to appear in your inbox, on your device, every week, magically, like clockwork, like this week's episode with my guests, Alice Fulcher and Gregory Erdstein, who have come on to talk about their film, That's Not Me, which opens in cinemas, in palace cinemas across the country this week, Thursday, September the 7th. You can catch them at a couple of Q&As and you will be able to get more information on that at that'snotmefilm.com. Going to uh, going to miff this year, and then kind of seeing subsequent films that are being released, uh, like getting mainstream kind of releases. It feels like there's almost this new wave of Aussie independent cinema that's kind of coming out. You know, between you guys and um, Ali's Wedding and uh, Killing Ground and Australia Day. Australia Day is maybe not so much in the independent spectrum, but it really feels like um, all of a sudden we've got all these great kind of indie Mm. uh, Aussie films being released to the mainstream. Yeah. It's particularly exciting to see um, comedy, more comedy happening. So I feel like in, well, uh, you know, in Australian cinema, if you look at the last kind of 10 years or so, I can't really think of any Australian comedies that have broken out that don't have a dog in them (laughs) pretty much. So, I mean, Ali's Wedding did fantastically over the weekend, which is incredibly deserved. So hopefully between them and us and anyone else who's making comedies, we can start to Mm. be a bit more of a new wave, I I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I don't know whether it's just more visible now because of the of the restructuring of the uh, criteria for actor, but definitely people sit uh, actor. Sorry, <laughs> never know how to pronounce that. Actor. Um, they pulled us up on it the other day. So. Yeah, so <laughs> shouldn't have two ways then. No. <laughs> I am never going to be one to question the academy. So <laughs> actor, yeah. I guess with 35 films now, it seems like all of a sudden, oh, there's all of these Australian films, but there were heaps of like independent. It's only because of the um, the films that spoke up last year. Yeah. Because there were lots of independent films and the criteria changing now to include video on demand. But it does seem like there is a lot more um, people just grabbing a camera and going out and making a feature. And it's at the very least, it's certainly a lot more visible now. Um, cause I know that when we started out, there was, um, I was, maybe, you know, the correct title is real good friends. It was a local kind of mumblecore film okay. that got made, but even like in the last year, there's uh, lazy bones as well. And there was a great one at Sydney as well. It was co-written and starring, uh, or, uh, Daniel Monks who just finished up the, as the elephant man in the malt house and it's called pulse. And that was just like a very kind of, uh, DIY lo-fi film as well so yeah it definitely feels like there's a a new wave of uh, independent cinema coming out in australia which is great i feel like long term it'd be good to see rather than i don't know 
don't know how this would work in practicality, but it'd be nice to see like Screen Australia or someone take away funding from one $5 million film and fund five $1 million films by first-time feature directors just to encourage new talent as well. Or just to give that money. They don't have to take it away from well, another film. Well, you know, if their funding's <laughs> cut though, there's only so much they can do. Yeah, I know. They're, they're, they're under pressure as well. But I think um, I remember seeing Robert Connolly speak about seven or eight years ago talking about how it would be great because at that time it, they were leaning towards the big $10 million films in uh, in Australia and how great it would be if instead of those 10, uh, uh, the $10 million films, if there were 10 $1 million films, because it is really just about quantity, like, like you were saying before. It feels like there's so many films getting made and f- films getting out there. Um, if you look at the, the big cinematic countries around the world, they're all producing lots and lots of work, whereas, I mean, 35 is a lot of films, but um, you compare that to France, I think they have like 120 or something like that every year. Mm. So, mm. And, I, and, and I guess there's, uh, you know, it's, there's, there's probably something in the generational kind of thing where it's, you know, there's guys like um, like you who went to film school. Uh, you guys finished up about 10, 10 years Seven, ago? 17 years ago? Eight years ago. Eight years ago, Eight yeah. Years ago. Um, but the first one of the first VCA films that I worked on as out, as a foundation student was Jonathan Alterheide's um, Hell's Gates, and he was kind of the the first or one of the first back then. And I think that was just when the red camera came out. And I think that's like the tools have certainly made it a lot more accessible, mm. rather than um, having to shoot on handy cam or um, film. or film. Yeah, I know there was a film about. 13, 14 years ago, which is now being made into a series, The the Magician, which was just uh, RMIT students shooting on, on their cameras. But yeah, Jono just left, went from film school the year after and he's like, we're going to make a feature. And they did it. And I, that was, I remember we were there at the Adelaide Film Festival and we saw that premiere with him and saying to him afterwards, it's like, you've done it. You've, you're a director now. Like there's no one can take that away from you. And I think that's always been kind of filed away in the back of our heads of that you just if no one's giving you that opportunity just go out there and take it if you can do you guys remember um the the first time you know kind of going back to childhood and so much of your film that's not me is is about kind of chasing the dreams of childhood even if they don't really make sense anymore um but do you guys remember that kind of that first experience that you may have had growing up either as an, as an actor or writer or direct, like creating something. Yeah, definitely. It's funny, isn't it? Because I remember I was talking to Greg about this the other day and I was saying how um, I remember when I discovered that I wasn't good at sport. So I went to the cross country for the first time in primary school and I was with my friend Larissa and it was when she discovered she was good. <laughs> so we start out on this run and I must have got like 100 or 200 meters and just been like, oh my God, and walked the rest of the way. And she nailed it. She was amazing. And from then on, she was one of the most athletic people in our year throughout um, primary school and I'm sure well into high school as well. Um, I think it's it's so exciting when you're that um, young age discovering where your talents lie and where your skills lie. And I think mine was probably just uh, auditioning for like little class plays. I remember one in year five, uh, was I think it's Jackie French, Don't Pat the Wombat, I think the book is called. And I auditioned for a minor role and got given... Uh, one of the lead roles, and I think it's it's that exciting feeling of feeling like I might be good at something. Yeah, that's probably mine. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I forget that I have to answer 
that question as well <laughs> yeah. because we share the same brain. Um, the I think for me it was, and I think it's probably the same for lots of filmmakers, is like when the family got a, uh, a handy cam back in the day, a high eight um, uh, home video camera, and uh, anytime we went on holidays, uh, my sister and I, my sister Nina and I would um, would just make these dumb videos doing tours of our hotel rooms. <laughs> I think we would alternate of either me filming and her hosting and me hosting and her filming and called it Greg Tours. It was um, very imaginatively titled. Um, and, yeah, then I, I, I would kind of rope in my, my parents to, to, to help me um, do little uh, skits and things like that to film me acting in skits. But I don't know. Yeah, I didn't really follow up acting after that. But uh, and then after that, I <laughs> that think it was pinnacle. yeah. <laughs> well, I did remember the other day that like, there was a. I had this moment in year ten where I had signed up to do drama for a semester, and then at the last minute, I was like, "No, I want to do media." And I never did drama again. And then from there, went on and did media for the rest of uh, high school. And I think it was at the beginning of year twelve when um, we had to do our first assignment for that year, and. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, Richard Jardine, and I just got some uh, friends together on the street with a basketball hoop and just kind of cut together a stupid um, music video of the guys playing basketball. And Richard uh, was like one of the first people who had um, video editing software. And up until that point, everyone, even at our high school, people were editing using like two video players and the, the decks, like the old school video editing. And that was the first time I'd seen non-linear uh, video editing and um, yeah, so we cut together this this basketball video and <laughs> it was it just kind of really changed what I thought of was possible and because I and um, from there I I made my own film that year for for media and got into like the the, the top cat screenings cats is what they were called back then not as in I was a hep cat or anything <laughs> like that a common assessment task uh, yeah so I got into like the premier award screenings at the end of um, year 12 and screened at the old state theater and um that's kind of where i got the dumb idea that i could be a filmmaker yeah it's funny with home videos isn't it i was thinking Mm. we had a my uncle ian had a video camera so he brought it over to our house when i was like five or six and i watched back the video a few years ago of my brother was the one probably operating the camera because i was just a little show pony and i just wanted to be in front of it and it's pretty funny and i think we need to have a, have a have a look at that footage. <laughs> yeah, DVD extras. It's, it's pretty mm. funny. Yeah. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I, I uh, used to make uh, wrestling videos at school. <laughs> right. Because um, I was and still am a very big uh, fan of wrestling. Mm. But yeah, I guess at some point when we were fifteen, we got into our heads that we could be wrestlers and just mm. made videos. And I a bit embarrassed about going back and watching them, but I kind of really want to as well. Mm. I think it's always good to look back at those things. Like we had this funny thing where we made a short uh, called Why Ryan is on Detention. Um, and it was the first thing Greg and I kind of co-wrote. And it was based on some of my dad's poetry because he's a, he's a poet. Uh, and we made this it's really good little drama that, you know, did a few festivals and stuff and, and we're really proud of it. But Greg was generally know that I'd actually tried to make that short about six or seven years earlier on a handy cam before I got into VCA as a comedy and not as a drama. Mm. 
and some of the script was the same. And so one of my old flatmates came over for dinner one night and he had a hard drive and he's like, oh, I've got all this stuff that was on my computer that's yours. So he pulls it over onto Greg's computer and one of the folders says, why Ryan is on detention? And Greg's like, hello, <laughs> and opens. <laughs> and it's just like this bizarro film of the film that we'd made that was just shit. And so we sent it to our producer with like, we, we remade the film and he watched it. And he was just like, this is the most elaborate joke. Like he thought we'd gone out, filmed it all really shit, you know. <laughs> so it's actually amazing though because you can see the development over the six years of us as filmmakers with better equipment and better directing and all that kind of stuff. But Absolutely. It's pretty mm. funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, Greg, you, you were saying that you did um, media through high school. Was, was mm-hmm. um, Alice was drama something that you – we're doing all through high school and were your parents, both of you kind of supportive of your choices or were they hoping that you would go and do law or medicine or something? My parents practical? have always been so supportive. Uh, my mum's uh, a Anglican minister and my dad's a school, te- was a school teacher, but he's retired now and he's a poet. Um, so I think there's a very creative and performative element to, to my family. And my brother was a musician for a while as well. And he's really talented. So uh, yeah, I, mean, I did drama, music, I learned how to play violin, guitar, I was in bands in high school, uh, did all of the school plays, uh, did drama all the way to, to year 12. In fact, for years 11 and 12, I didn't do maths or science at all. I just did English, extension English, extension to English, <laughs> uh, visual arts, drama, all the history, all the kind of creative Humanities. Things. Yeah, and they've always been really supportive. Um, and even though I know we make stabs about it in the film, um, about whether that's a good thing, telling people to, telling your children to follow their dreams and they can do whatever they, they want and then they might end up disappointed in their 20s. I still would hands down have rather that my parents supported our dreams um, and gave us that uh, faith in ourselves rather than put us down and told us, you know, just go out and do what you can, do your best. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, it's funny. I think we're, we're both each uh, younger siblings and both of our older siblings studied law. Yeah. I just realised. I reckon they had that sense of responsibility as the older sibling. Yeah. Yeah. I have Um, almost the opposite. I'm the older sibling and my brother, my younger brother did law. Oh, really? Yeah, right. (laughs) Well, there's always been one in the family to balance it out. Yeah. 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 Um, (laughs) But yeah, my sister was, is, um, I was going to say was, Hi, Nana, if you're listening. My sister is incredibly smart and she got one of the top uh, schools in the state and I, kind of, I guess I kind of always felt I was in in the shadow of that. So I thought, well, there's no... I'm not going to be able to get those types of scores. But I always really loved like writing, creative writing. I think, just thinking a little bit further, I think back to primary school, I did lots of creative shorts. I really loved creative writing then. Um, so that was probably, I guess, the very beginning of that. But my parents, again, were also very encouraging. And similarly, it's kind of in the film as well. I did actually put on in grade five when we were doing this assignment where you had to see, say where you want to be in the year 2000, where do you want to be in the year 2020? And in the year 2020, I said that I wanted to own a milk bar because I wanted to live where I worked. It seemed like a pretty cushy, cushy life. And... Um, my mum read it and she's like, no, no, but you love drawing. And um, yeah, I, I love doing cartoons as well. And you love drawing and don't you want to become an animator? Like you want to, let's put, let's cross that out. And why don't you write that you want your own feature film and animation company? And 
So, Goal achieved. Well, well yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I guess the it's been a long road, but yeah, I went straight from, um, I wanted to get into the film school uh, at BCA pretty much from when I was in year 12. It was a lot difficult, uh, more difficult that back then, even like 10 years ago, it was more difficult to get straight from high school into the film school because they wanted people with life experience, which I completely understood by the time that I did get into the film school. Um, so I went, I, I didn't get in and I instead uh, went to a, like a wonderful course called the School of Creative Arts, at which was jointly run by the Victorian College of the Arts and the University of Melbourne at the time. And it was this almost like a sampler of all of the schools at the VCA in one course, as well as creative writing. So you could do sculpture, painting, drawing, photography, web design, filmmaking, theatre, um, creative writing. I know I'm forgetting one of them. Uh art history but it was it was 50 50 split between theory and practical and so that I guess that was my second choice but it ended up being one of the best choices because I got this kind of holistic creative arts education and I was just saying the other day that um, it's one of those courses it only ran for for seven years because I think eventually the VCA handed it over to the University of Melbourne and then the University of Melbourne didn't quite know what to do with it and so it eventually shuttered about 10 years ago, but it's the kind of course that's, um, it's, uh, you can see the, the benefits of it just in the, the creative arts today. Um, the person who did our orientation on the first day was Lally Katz, who's one of Australia's great playwrights. Uh, in my film class, again, I was saying the other day, the uh, Amy to my Polly is, uh, was Nick Verso, who directed Boys in the Trees. Both and, with long, luscious ginger locks. Yeah, so <laughs> at least uh, I can compete with him on some level. Um, but yeah, and and, it's count- and I've met countless other great artists over since leaving who all did that course. And it's um, it's a shame it got shuttered because it was um, the I think the dean of it was Angela O'Brien, and she just had this vision for this school, and I think she's been proven right over time. Um, what was the question again? Yeah, we're <laughs> on like little tangents where I feel like mm. we just talk, talk, talk away mm. and then we're like, what was the question again? <laughs> I've, mm. I've created we a podcast talk. predicated yeah. on rambling. So yeah. <laughs> ah, right. The question was, yes. And so my parents supported me yeah. through that. <laughs> yes, they were great through that. My parents have acted also in a lot of um, my shorts as well. And yeah. then... Well, Muffy, his, his mum, Margot, who gets called Muffy, she she was also a performer in her own right. Yeah, that's right. She was... Um, she was When I grew up, um, she did a lot of... Uh, uh, amateur uh, theatre in the uh, various light operatic societies around um, the, uh, the southeastern suburbs of, of Melbourne. And I saw her performing in plays and, and musical theatre. Uh, before I was born, she was a finalist on New Faces uh, back in uh-huh. the day. I would really like to and see that. Yeah, and she had a. She always tells this story of. Um, she was on New Faces and she had three older brothers who used to like play lots of practical jokes on her. And the day after she was on New Faces, she got this call from someone posing as a record label executive saying, I saw you on New Faces last night. You're incredible. I'd, we'd love to meet up with you. And she was like, yeah, right, whatever, and hung <laughs> up on them. And it wasn't any of her brothers. It was, it was, a, real, um, it was a real phone call. So, um, But, yeah, my mum is an incredibly talented singer, performer as well so i think that was part of the the bloodline showing through there yeah Mm. and so coming out of high school you know kind of 
been circling around the VCA and um, I mean that's where you guys met and uh, you know where you kind of developed these chops um, Alice you went to QUT first yeah. yeah I did the drama course uh, which is more of a theatre oriented course uh, where students are really encouraged to create work as well which I really like and I think that's a part of uh, part of that that I've really taken into filmmaking as well which is the creating work for yourselves um, but after I graduated, I did the auditions for VCA, NIDA and the QT fine acting course as well. And you grew up in Brisbane? No, I grew up in Canberra. I was born in Sydney. I've been everywhere. I was born in <laughs> Sydney and then at the age of four, I moved to Canberra. Then at the age of 13, I moved to Coffs Harbour and then I graduated from high school, went to Brisbane and then spent part of that time in Leeds as well, studying comedy acting at their, their degrees, like an exchange program. Um, and I had never been to Melbourne actually until the end of my QT degree. I came down to the arts festival with a couple of girlfriends and it was on the first night. I was like, I can't believe this place exists in Australia. I have to move here. Um, and so I auditioned for VCA NIDA and QT acting and I got shortlisted for VCA, whereas I didn't get through the first rounds for the other two. And there was something about the VCA that did feel right as well. There's a method of working even in the acting course, as well as the filmmaking course that feels more. Oh, there's something very authentic about it. Um, yeah, and I didn't feel as, and maybe maybe it's not true for NIDA and QUT, but I, I certainly feel the the pressure of what you look like as a young female actress, and it's certainly one of the reasons why I gave it up for a while, uh, whereas VCA seemed to be more interested in the whole, whole package rather than, I don't know, that sounds, that sounds harsh towards the other two because I'm sure they're interested in skills as well as its looks as well. But it's, a, I don't know, like looking at the graduates, they all just seem to be incredibly beautiful, whereas VCA was a package of, of different looks and different types. Um, probably just digging a hole and just digging more and more into it. Uh, but yeah, I got shortlisted for VCA and so I thought I'd move to Melbourne and then do the non-award courses and then reapply the next year. And I got uh, halfway through the non-award courses before I realised that it wasn't what I wanted to do right then. Um, I finished them off anyway, and I, I met some great friends that year, including Isabel Lucas, who's in the film. Um, but I, I had that crisis of confidence, a lot to do with uh, appearance and what you look like, and thinking if that's a massive currency, then I don't think this is an industry I want to be a part of in that in that facet. Um, and You'd rather judge other people. I'd rather judge other people. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I love creating as well, and I didn't get into it to be worried about what I look like. And certainly when I gave it up, I felt this massive relief and this sense of, okay, I can kind of just be me and not be worried. Um, and so I made a couple of short films that year, first year in Melbourne, whilst working at the Como Cinema in South Yarra, and then uh, applied for VCA at the end of that year. Um, and unlike Greg, who had to kind of fight quite hard to get into the VCA film course, I think there's quite a demand for women. So I think personally it was probably a bit easier for me. They probably saw potential in me as well, and I'm just talking it down, but I only had two short films, and I only showed them one of them because I hated the other one, which was that Why Ryan is Not Attention one. Um, but they let me in, and they took a bit of a, a risk on me, and it didn't pay off in the first year, and I wasn't very good, and they almost didn't let me back in for the, the final year, the master's year, because you had to reapply at that point. Uh, and I was just really lucky. Again, they took a risk on me. <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I did a lot better in the, in the second year and was much happier with my film. And I feel like I've learned a lot from it. But certainly after coming out of film school, I realised I did miss acting. So it's been really nice to step back into that, that role. What do you think the value is in, uh, as, as an actor, having the, the skills to be able to create your own work so you're not sort of putting the power in the hands of those who give you the jobs? 
I think it's fantastic for so many different reasons because you can create the roles and the writing that you want to be a part of rather than being at the mercy of other people's productions. Um, and also I was listening to this that uh, talk about the Duplass Brothers gave or one of the Duplass Brothers gave, I think it was South by Southwest or something mm. like that, where he was talking about the benefits of being a, an actor and a writer and a creator is also that you're, you're part of that group rather than being an actor saying to writers and directors, hey, cast me, I'm really great, is that you're part of that creative team uh, and there's not that sense that you're sucking up to them or you're trying to get in good with them because, you know, doesn't matter if they don't cast me because I've got my own work that I'm creating as well. So there's a bit more of a level playing field, which feels really nice. Um, but yeah, also because you get to create work and you get to be involved in, in every stage of it, whether it's the writing or the casting or the production or the post-production or whatever. It's, yeah, it's much more satisfying. Mm. Mm. Um, and, and Greg, for you going to VCA, what was the, I guess, the, the experience of that like in terms of building and refining the skills that you have now uh it was it was quite interesting i was reflecting on this last week actually uh that i had a certain style of film that i liked making that i because i was able to do filmmaking in the creative arts course so i spent three years doing uh, filmmaking there and then I came out of that and i tried to reapply for vca again didn't get in uh, applied for afters at the same time, got a stage further, but then um, I got—I uh, didn't get an interview because they had uh, a question about my maturity, which is uh, <laughs> feedback that they actually sent me, and um, I was able to recount to them when I did a talk at afters the other week, which was payback. Um, <laughs> no, it was—it uh, was fair enough, and I, I guess it was another example of, of coming up against that um, that uh, brick wall of, of not being old enough, not being ready to, to be a filmmaker. And it's it's changed a little bit now, but uh, by, I went off uh, after that and felt a little bit disillusioned with the whole thing and um, went off and did another creative pursuit, whereas I wanted to, wanted to be in a band and um, started playing music in a band. And again, my parents were very supportive. Um, and so I did that for about three, four years, but then... I just I got to my late twenties and thought, well, if I if I want to figure out if this is for me, I should probably now's the the time to go back and, and figure it out. And so I enrolled in the foundation course at the VCA, and I started crewing on VCA shorts. And it was as that that um, year went on that I realised that uh, what I had thought was just a couple of years of of just kicking around pissing my 20s up the wall and not actually doing anything I was actually was actually gaining quite a lot of life experience and had a a different perspective that I could now offer on um, my filmmaking and yeah so I did the foundation course which is actually really I now teach in it so I should put that disclaimer it is actually very good it's a fantastic course Uh, but it is a great course because it's they have the same quality, if not better, lecturers that they do at the um, in the full time course, but because they're able to get them outside of hours, um, and it's just a really good um, chance to like. There's people that I met in that course, um, one of whom Kelly Hucker, who's an amazing director herself. She also went on to the the VCA Film School. She was our script supervisor on the feature film. She's developed as a um, 
as an incredible script supervisor. She also did Three Summers, which just came out recently uh, or comes out later this year, screened at MIFRI recently. And so I, it was just another chance to, to, to get a new network of people. And But around that time, I was making these, um, I guess they were kind of surreal, magic realism, kind of very Lynchian style um, films. And I thought that was that was my style. And up until, yeah, about last week, I thought, that was my style and this is just actually this is even the film the feature film which is quite realistic and near realistic even though it's is a bit absurd comedy um i thought this is this is just a diversion but i actually realize now that the stuff that i was doing back then was the experimentation and this is actually the style this is my style of filmmaking um because I, I had thought for a long time that I didn't really spend that much time experimenting. I had this very clear idea of what I wanted to do or what I wanted to be as a filmmaker, and it was that that kind of surrealist, um, dark, uh, I guess, nightmare comedy. And now I realise in hindsight that that was the experimentation. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's it's there's there's like I guess there's that emergence kind of from that. Mm. Um, from that style or that mindset and suddenly you're like oh actually i have built this skill set to be able to create work like this Mm. yeah and i i was saying that i almost feel like what i was doing back then i had i would have a a uh, i guess a high concept that i hid behind because i wasn't willing to just put the writing out out front and center which is what was so great about when we first started collaborating together is that it was a much kind of, there was nothing to it. It was just two people having a conversation in a park and it was three minutes and it was, uh, took an hour of our time to shoot. Whereas my graduate short was just this ridiculous uh, effort of special effects and puppets. And (laughs) uh, yeah, I just thought that I had to go, I had to go big or go home with my, final film at VCA which I think is a attitude most people have coming out of film school is that their final film is the defining statement of who they are as an artist when in actual fact it's just another film mm, and in many cases it's really just the beginning as well yeah hopefully I think that's what both of us found was quite um, um, paralyzing coming out of VCA is that you almost have to learn how to make films again uh, once you get out um, because you don't have the institution backing you, you don't have the resources, the the equipment store. You don't have, um, you can't say I'm making a VCA film, which I'm in, or just any sort of film st- uh, student film. You have a bit of leniency when you're approaching actors and crew members. They're like, okay, well they're a student. Whereas once you're out in the real world, it's like, well, why aren't you paying me? Or uh, or just in general, like you have to find the money to do it all again, and it it's, can be quite paralyzing so i think it was really important to just what i didn't uh whilst i didn't make my own stuff for 18 months straight out of film school what i did do is that i um i got asked to first ad a film back in the master's program at vca and then ended up firsting about half a dozen to a dozen films after that which was a really great chance for me to see how other people directed so how did you guys start collaborating Ah, uh, well, we were already in a relationship by that point. Um, How did and that happen first? first <laughs> um, so uh, towards the end of the first year that we were together, 
um, to, that we were studying at um, at VCA. We we got together. I had a bit of a crush on him before then. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, he um, became single, and a few months later, we got together. It was great. <laughs> uh, and then we were together for the the masters year, but making films independently because that's what you do at VCA. And then out of film school, I guess we started already like looking at each other's scripts and helping each other. And then it felt natural to write one together that I directed, which was Why Ryan is on Detention. Um, and Greg hadn't made anything yet and we we're about 18 months out. And that's when I was yeah suggesting, just make anything, just make something. And our uh, DOP, Ryan Alexander Lloyd, had just a couple of cans of 16 mil. And we thought, we'll just make a two-hander about this experience that we'd recently had overseas. Um, as we made that one and I think we kind of stumbled across a style that we really liked uh, which was like social satire really realistic performances but funny scripts that had something to say Um, and so we started developing that a bit more I guess yeah it just happened quite organically really well we made that one and that was a comedy and yeah it was called picking up at Auschwitz (laughs) right and it was based on an experience Yeah, it was based on an experience that we had um, at the Auschwitz-Birkenau camps where we saw a, just a tourist behaving badly and at the end of the day she asked a um, one of the other people in the tour group for their phone number, literally tried to pick up at, at Auschwitz and um, we kind of it stayed with us as though, what the hell, like who would do that? And But more to the point, what would they tell... Like if they did get together, what would they? What was the story that they would tell? And so that's what the film was. It was just um, uh, an Australian woman telling her friend the story of how she met this Norwegian guy at Auschwitz, but being very precise and and clearly the the story being so clear in her head. But at the same time, when getting asked questions about what what actually happened there, she just fumbles over the details, gets things completely wrong. And I guess it was a it's it's a bit of a gag film but at the same time it's about collective memory and and how long is it going to be before this just becomes another another story that that people forget and um it seemed to really kind of hit a chord and it ended up being we spent i guess the compared to our graduate films we spent the least amount of effort on this film and it ended up being the most successful um but we made this yeah as a comedy is a three-minute comedy and when we toured that at various festivals it was always this moment of light relief in all of the programs because a lot of the programs were really long films really heavy films really dark films there's with not dark a whole th- lot of comedy happening yeah there's not a lot of um there's not a lot of comedy that was happening in the festival programs that we were in and so we were like the exception to the rule and i think again it says a lot about the how dark the other films were where the Auschwitz film was the comic relief (laughs) and it was such a rush to hear people laughing as they slowly got what was happening in the film and then um, we're egomaniacs so you know we thrive off of laughter yeah validation in general (laughs) well I think it's a given we're in the creative arts we we need to be validated but um it was after that that we actually made the why Ryan is on detention short because we we got our we got our foot in the door with this with this really short low rent comedy and uh we thought oh okay now we'll make the the serious film and we put all of our efforts into this this um film which was much larger in scale probably similar in scale to our uh films at uh, vca and that was my turn to direct because i was still wanting to be a director Yeah, yeah and alice directed that one we co-wrote it and um 
yeah, we got into some of the same festivals and I just remember the, the screenings wouldn't, weren't as satisfying because now we were, I, for lack of a better term, part of the, the problem where we were, we were one of the other serious films. There was no laughter in our film. And I just, I think we came out of that experience thinking, yeah, let's not do that again. Let's, let's yeah. make comedies because that's, it's, uh, we wanted to be, I guess the, what's the Stanley Kubrick's uh, saying that, then in a universe of darkness, we all must provide the light. And I think we wanted to... <laughs> we went deep there. Yeah. Well, we had it on our wall, I remember, for mm-hmm. a long time there, but um, in our in our writing room. But yeah, I think that's what we yeah. wanted to be. We wanted to be the light in, in what is otherwise a, uh, a pretty dark landscape of, of filmmakings at, at times in this country. And I, I wonder with that if it's because we want to be taken seriously as a country, so we feel like we have to make serious films as well. I do wonder what it is, because we do make a lot of dark films and a lot of serious films. A lot of bleak films. Lot of bleak films. Mm. It's not to say they're not good films, but I just think there's room for laughter in the entertainment industry as well, because it just mm. must be entertaining. I think it, also, it doesn't mean mm. you can't say something interesting about the human experience or you know something existential or whatever in a comedy. Mm. Yeah. It was interesting at um, the Ali's wedding... Um, screening at MIF and Andrew Knight was talking about how he came to be on board with that project and he had wanted, he was looking to, to write a, a refugee story, but he didn't want it to be a really heavy didactic um, piece of, of uh, art that no one would go and see. And so that's why he gravitated towards uh, Osama Sami's story because he wanted to, he wanted to do something that was funny that would draw people in and I think, um, and you can smell its authenticity as well. Yeah, it's really an authentic film, and um, I think when it comes to the the darker stuff, I just I'm I can't I personally can't make those films. I because I don't have the skill set to do it because I am someone who is always taking the piss out of situations, and I don't think that life is either wholly serious or wholly funny. It's kind of this this weird mix of of both of them. So I think. I'm not, yeah, I'm, I'm glad those other films are getting made, but it's just not the kind of thing that I even have the ability to do, I don't think. Mm. And it's nice to see, to kind of, you know, as we sort of discussed at the start, you know, it's nice to see more comedy or more um, <clears throat> genre-based sort of films being mm. actually given uh, the, the time of day and, and being put out into a kind of mainstream way. So it's not that you have to go to MIF or you, the you know the underground versions of these festivals to actually be able to go and see Australian content that is that kind of lighter in that lighter spectrum. Yeah, I think people watch people love genre filmmaking and I think whenever I don't know if it's the same with other people but whenever I watch a genre film and it's some sort of global catastrophe or science sci-fi about a, a near distant future i'm always wondering oh i wonder what melbourne's like in in that world and or i wonder what sydney's like in that world no and no, you, no it always centers on new york or la yeah yeah well you want to know what it, what what australia's like in that near future world beyond just a token cutaway that they insert at the end of independence day for that market mm. um of oh, oh oh that's what happened there's a spaceship crashed into the opera house okay well great um you kind of you want yeah, to always... i love those films and i love disaster films i would love to make a film like twister someday that is such a great film mm. I was just thinking we could, we could make like escape from melbourne in a dystopian future and get kurt russell to reprise his role why Kurt Russell? Why couldn't we have uh, Steve Bisley in that role? Steve Bisley, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
Hang on, I've just got to write that write down. That down. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, it's on record. Great, yeah. Um, so in 2014, you guys went and did a residency in uh, in Paris. Yeah. Uh, and that's where That's Not Me began. Um, would, would, you, would you speak on that? Yeah, so um, like I mentioned, my dad's a poet. Uh, and so in 2010, when we went over to Europe and went to Auschwitz we also visited him in Paris so him and my mum were staying there because he'd gotten a six-month writing residency as a poet uh, and it's the most amazing complex in the heart of Paris like right on the river in the Marais and it has 330 studios and they're full of painters and dancers and writers and um, musicians just everything and uh, you can I think there's 30 of them that you can apply directly to the the Cité des Artes called to apply for a really really cheap rent uh, whereas we weren't eligible for the other studios because they're hired out by people like um, the Australia Council for, for writers and things like that. Uh, so we applied for one of the more generic studios there and then just saved up a lot of money. And I think there were a couple of hundred applications and we got one of the, the 30 studios, which was really cool. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we pitched the idea for That's Not Me, uh, just the kernel of it, the idea of the the twin sisters. One of them's an act, or they're both actors. One of them's successful and the other one's not. And then developed it when we got over there. So we spent eight months where we like had a whole wall in our studio that was uh, divided into Act One, Act Two, Act Three with scene cards and uh, ideas and characters and all of that. And we slowly plotted it out over a few months. Then Greg was at the time editing uh, A Bit Rich, which was our short film that ended up going to Tropfest. Um, and then another short film he was kind of co-editing with someone back home, which was a film called Two Devils that he co-directed with Jonathan Ofterheider. Um, and I wrote the first kind of skeletal draft there, if that's not me, and for about 75 pages. And then as we tend to do when we're writing scripts, we don't sit side by side when we physically write them. So I hand it back to him. He has a go, hands it back to me. We talk about certain scenes, back and forth, go for long walks around Paris, which is beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, go to. We went out a lot to different exhibitions. Like every week we'd try and go to a different gallery, see a different film, like a new film and an old film, um, and just immerse ourselves because we had that luxury of not working um, or the everyday normal distractions you have in your home city and your normal friends. And we had fewer friends over there. So we really immersed ourselves in all things creative um, and also just getting out and walking in Paris and sitting by, you know, sitting on the sidewalk cafes like you do and having a glass of wine because we can and we don't drive anywhere. So <laughs> mm. it was it was incredible. Mm. I think uh, like having spoken to people about that experience and it does, it sounds fantastic, but it also can sound a little um unachievable well yeah it's it's inaccessible in some ways it's like oh great you got you got to you got your film done because you got to go to paris for eight months how does that help me but i think you could equally go to rosebud for a certain amount of time what the or anywhere really it's just about getting out of your everyday routine and getting into an environment that is stimulating in some way and um i mean Obviously, Paris is super stimulating, but equally, you, you could just like go to um, just get get out of your usual routine to, to write. I think is is the key. Mm. Mm. Just to kind of uh, as as an aside, why did you guys? Why were you in Auschwitz before? Is are you guys Jewish? Uh, Greg's family are. Uh, yeah, my dad's family is, and um, so we still have relatives who live in uh, Warsaw. So uh, I was much a, a trip to take Alice to, to meet my relatives there I think I worked out the um, 
um, my auntie and uncle did this amazing thing about 25 years ago where they recorded um, my, <laughs> in some ways it was like a podcast, they recorded on their handy cam my grandparents telling their life story for about two and a half hours and I've always had it sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, I'll listen to it one day or I'll watch it one day and whilst consuming podcasts with <laughs> listening to other people talk about their lives and I finally sat down and, and listened to it all and I figured out and it was an incredible um, incredibly moving experience listening to their story but I figured out the relatives who are still left in Poland are there's like third or fourth or fifth cousins twice removed or something like that but they are like my first cousins really so we were there visiting that family and um uh we had the time when we went down to Krakow to uh to go there I had actually um been already to Auschwitz uh 12 years or eight years prior to that so that was the second time I'd been there that was the first time I've been to a country where I didn't speak the language as well. I think I've been quite sheltered. Or I just haven't had money to travel, to be honest, as well. And um, my mum was born in England, so I'd been to England and Paris, and I speak French or badly, but I speak it. Um, and it was really weird. <laughs> I was like, we got on the train to, to go over there, or the plane to go over there, and I was like, oh, my God, I don't even know how to say hello in Polish. <laughs> I'd done no, no research. Mm. We did all right. Mm. <laughs> how do you think that these kind of uh, experiences feed into your creative process? Uh, I think they're very important. I think that's, I think most of the writing happens away from the desk for us. At least that's what I've been telling uh, ourselves whilst we're just trying to self-distribute a, a film and haven't really <laughs> had that much time to write. But I think we do kind of keep notes on, on uh, I think the, the process of, of having made this particular film and the writing of this script um, it's similar to the realization that I had at film school of of realizing oh, I actually do have like a lot of stories to tell and life experience to draw on, because the a lot of the stories and the things that are funny or the things that led to um, fictional situations that were funny in the film are based on real experiences that we've had. So um, I think just being putting yourself out there. I, think, I can't remember who said it, but putting yourself in at least one uncomfortable situation a day will usually. Um, uh, lead to uh, plenty of material when it comes to sitting down at the writing desk and uh, I don't think you actively have to search out that uncomfortable situation. We were joking recently that um, our lives are, well, my life in particular seems to be a magnet for curb your enthusiasm type situations where these small uh, tragic comedies happen to me on a daily basis. So like his meal at a restaurant will be the one that they forget, you know, like it's, <laughs> that kind of thing happens all the time. I was on a streak of it happening about three or four restaurants in a row in the last month so um so i think getting out of the house is 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 actually key to 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 getting the writing happening i think that's what we learned in paris where there was this constant kind of um anxiety of either when you're in the studio we should be out enjoying paris or when you're out enjoying paris you should be back at the studio writing and i think um it's it must look from the outside looking in that the writer's lifestyle or that type of lifestyle is pretty cruisy, but it is just, I think you need, you can't just spend all of your time in front of a screen, no, and to be throwing fair a well, ball, like, throwing yeah. a ball against a wall going, what am I, 
what am I going to write? I think if the if you're sitting in front of a screen for 15 minutes and you haven't been able to write anything, get up and go for a walk. Walking is the best. Mm. But also, to be fair, like whilst we did spend eight months in Paris and we had saved up for that and I worked for Palace Cinemas for seven years before that, which felt unrelated but related at the time where it was in the cinema industry, but I thought, well, I don't want to be a festival program. And I was up. Oh, those working in festival coordinating and then in programming as well, um, and as well as in the cinemas and all of that. I thought I don't. This isn't what I want to do. You know, like as much as it's a great casual job, it's not what I want to do long term. And that experience has ended up being so crucial at this stage of the film, where when I'm talking about terms and sessions with programming at Palace now, I know exactly what they're talking about. I don't have to get someone to explain it to me when they say, oh, we're going to give you one and one, which means one day and one eve at that cinema. Like I know the terminology already. Um, And also I developed uh, relationships with Palace over the last 11 years now. So at least we got a look in with the film and, you know, they wouldn't have distributed or exhibited it rather if they didn't like the film. So we know that they at least like the film, but to get in the door and to be able to talk all the terminology with them and have those relationships is, you know, 11 years worth of, of work really. Mm. So, you know, I guess to kind of bring this idea of um, life experience uh, and how that feeds creativity into That's Not Me, how much of the, um, the, the story is underpinned by how, you know, you guys were feeling about your position and, and where you'd gotten to. I know that, um, that you guys were able to, you made the film for 60 grand. Mm. You shot it over nine months um, mm. in Melbourne and LA as well. What was the whole, I guess, kind of process and how much, as I said before, was underpinned by your experiences to date? Well, I mm. think because the idea... It was just that kernel I was saying that we took over to Paris of the twin thing. Um, But then we had the chance to stop and think about our own creative careers and why we are doing them and everything we're talking about now, I guess. Um, So the whole film became less about twins and more about being a part of a generation who've been raised to believe we could do or be whatever we want for better or worse and then getting further into your 20s and realising that you might have to readjust your goals or at least assess why you want to do what you want to do. So we were forced to do that when we were in Paris as well um, and I wrote a bunch of emails to all my friends saying, why do you want to be an actor? Why do you want to be this, blah, blah, blah. Um, and just started to explore the reasons why we do what we do and also why we elevate the creative arts uh, to a higher standard or a high, like a higher calling where, um, you know, like if you, if you say you want to be an actor, you have to, it has to be some deep and meaningful um, answer that you give people rather than just saying, it's like we were talking about in primary school, it's what I'm good at and it's what I enjoy. And if I was a good cross-country runner, maybe I would have become an athlete later in life. So, yeah, I think the film's themes are so intertwined with what we were going through as well. And the, the twin relationship for me was very much about those competitive relationships you have with for me with other women be it them actors or otherwise um, people that you grew up with or went to school with uh, or studied with or whatever um, and the way that those the you know those relationships affect your own self of self, um, sense of self and how destructive that is and how much we really need to learn to a support each other and b just run our own race and not be worried about someone else taking your spot hmm. i think also the from the way that we came through and out of film school probably <laughs> informs a lot of the the mentality of and the themes of, of the film itself because in some ways it is this re- really weird meta exercise of of um, making a film about someone trying to figure out whether or not 
they're actually going to follow through on that childhood dream. And if the film doesn't work out, then in some ways it's, <laughs> it's, it's, um, yeah, if the film doesn't work out, then we're going on a similar journey to one yeah. of the characters and it becomes living the film, the, the film's themes throughout the process beyond the actual making of it. Um, but I, um, the, when you're at film school in, in any kind of creative class, you, they, they give you that talk on the first day of, um, you're not, um, uh, you're not all going to make it nine out of 10 of you probably won't get any work in this industry at all. And everyone is sitting there going, God, I'm really glad they're telling everyone else this because they <laughs> think that they're going to be, everyone thinks that they're going to be the one and coming out of VCA, everyone expects that they're going to win the awards and then they'll get into a MIF or Sydney or Sundance or Khan. And then from there they'll get a development deal or they'll get to a funded short and then they'll get their development deal and then they'll get their funded feature. And if you miss any of those steps along the way, it can feel like, ah, maybe this isn't meant to be. And I think it was just through kind of sheer persistence and keeping on making stuff. And I I would say self-belief, but there's been a tremendous amount of self-doubt, at least on my part, (laughs) um, over the years of really not knowing, is this like, should we be doing this anymore? Like how... But I was. That's why you can't think about the end product, though. Yeah, you can't yeah. think about the end product, and I think that's kind of what we we got to within the the script writing stage of the, of the film of, of what we wanted to say about that. It's, I, it's funny thinking about persistence because <laughs> there's this um of two posters in in the corridor uh, outside my sister and my own bedroom uh, at my parents' house, and one poster was for my sister and one poster was for me <laughs> and the poster for my sister was uh it was one of those kind of here's a word and we'll we'll define what that word means and the one for my sister was excellence and the one for me was persistence <laughs> <laughs> it's so, so right so it's yeah i think it's just been something that's i think yeah once you kind of have this vision of of how how your your end of film school is going to turn out and it doesn't turn out like that, then that kind of becomes this thing that completely preoccupies you, particularly if that is what you really want to do. Um, Yeah, I think that... there's more than one pathway as well. I think people get hooked up on that one idea of this is how I'll kind of go through the creative arts, particularly for filmmaking. If you you get into VCA, you make sure you go to me, if you go into the funding bodies, all of that, and... Our journey has certainly been really different to that, but it's been a lot of work. Um, but yeah, I think there are different pathways and I think that people are starting to realise that, particularly with the accessibility of equipment as well. Mm. What were some of the, the day-to-day challenges that you guys had once you went into production? Um, catering. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we were very um, fortunate to have two um, producers that we went through uh, VCA with uh, Anna Kozhevnikov and Sally Story and uh, as an extension of them um, another VCA producing graduate Alexandra George who was the production manager and those three kind of formed this nexus that 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 kept the machine running and really gave us the space to to work creatively Um, because yeah we didn't really want to be um, dividing our attentions because the even though we were able to keep making shorts, what was I guess problematic about those shorts is that we never had 
producers or we were producing ourselves whilst also acting or directing those shorts. And in some cases I was also my own first assistant director and we just didn't want to go into something of this scale, not having the full team around us. And I'd also in spending all that time as a first assistant director, you, you see what a false economy it is having a small crew because if oh let's just have one camera assistant well then everything's going to take twice as long um so you may as well have that that full team so um i think it was more the pre-production element that was the most challenging thing and shooting over nine months in different blocks of either three five uh ten days it's I remember the, th- the first three days that we shot and we got to the end of that and it was high fives all around and it was about maybe we were shooting again in a month but it took about two weeks before we kicked back into pre-production. Um, there was this kind of feeling of um, this glow of oh, we've, we've, we made something and it got that, that feeling got um, the time period after each shoot got less and less because I think by the, the second last block it was immediately like the, you wake up the next morning and you're back in pre-production again. And as you would know as a filmmaker and anyone else out there listening, pre-production is the absolute worst. <laughs> I hate pre-production. And being in that constant state of pre-production was the worst thing about uh, making this film. So each block uh, was kind of treated uh, almost in a sense as its own little short film. Yeah, I guess so. I think that was actually one of the things... Um, Lloyd Allison Young, who plays Simon in the film and also contributed some music to the soundtrack, um, he was staying with us the night before the very first day of shooting and he said this thing that I kept on returning to that was really comforting as a director was that we're not going to shoot a feature film tomorrow, we're just going to shoot some scenes. And I just kept on reiterating that. And once you break it down into we're just shooting some scenes today, these are the scenes, how do we get into that scene, how do we get out of that scene that becomes much more achievable than, oh, we've got to make a whole feature. And also it was Jono um, who told me just before we started shooting from his experience on Van Diemen's Land is that there are no unimportant scenes. Don't go into a day thinking, oh, this is the easy day. This is the easy scene because that's going to be the scene that you you screw up and that'll be the scene that costs you the film. Mm -hmm. So I think having those two pieces of advice going into it, they, um, that, was a really easy way to yeah treat it like as if we were shooting a, a bunch of short films. I think one of the challenges for me um, was that uh, to maintain performance consistency over nine months because everyone else we would package their shoots into a, into their block. So like Belinda Msebski would do three day, four day kind of shoot. Um, same with Rowan Davy or Isabel's shoes shoots were two days that kind of thing. So we could everyone get everyone scenes out of the way in one hit. Whereas I had to be uh, consistent in performance and appearance for nine months. So the hair is easy because you just cut the hair a couple of inches every so often. Skin was really hard because you, you might break out. So on Isabel's days, I had like, oh, this one out now, but I had these three cystic pimples hmm. on my face that were like boils. And just the con- like con- continuity of watching it would have been crazy. So we had to have them like special effects remo- removed in two shots as well. So I think the continuity of performance and appearance was one of the hardest things for me. And, and remembering emotionally where I would have left off in the scene before. Um, but I think the way you kind of do it is you just have to try and um, be present in the content of the scene as well. But there is something about trying to map out how Polly emotionally feels for the whole film as well to consider where you are 
in the, in the, the grand scheme of things as well. Mm. So it was, it was a challenge, definitely. And how did you guys feel coming out of it, like at the end of the, at least I guess at the end of production, because then I guess you got post-production. Well, it feels... Post-production started before we finished. <laughs> yeah, it was. it's a strange thing because there were so many, this is the last day of shooting, oh, we've just got it, and it just became this thing of, oh, this is the last day, except we still need to get that shot. <laughs> and it was, by the time we got the very last shot, the film so was, plain. which is... Yeah, which was some of the stuff on the plane. The airport was really hard to 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 get into. Um, by the time we got that stuff, it was pretty much just dropping it into the finished film. So there was no. Well, I guess there was <laughs> actually also like the last shot. The last shot we shot was Polly on the plane, and we shot it on half a plane at the Moorabbin Aviation Museum. Mm. And by that point, it was just me, Greg. The makeup artist, Shelley, a cinematographer, and his uh, camera assistant. There was no sound for that. Thomas Formosa Doyle. Correct, TFD. Mm. Um, and so there was, there was not even any sound for that. So there's just five of us, and we, we needed extras to populate that as well in the background. So I was sitting in one seat. Greg was sitting next to me with the split in his hand. Mm. Our makeup artist and the camera assistant were in the seats behind us, so he's pulling focus behind us. Mm. Um, and it was, it was just like really sad with just the five of us where we made a little video at the end where Greg went, that's a wrap. Right. <laughs> it was the saddest little wrap show. The funny thing about that, that um, the fact that the makeup artist is uh, Juliana is um, in the background of that that particular scene on the plane is that she's also an extra <laughs> at at the tram stop where um, Polly looks over and sees the the California tourism poster. So we've got this idea in our heads that they both saw that same poster and end up on the same flight to Los Angeles uh, <laughs> months later. Um, Little Easter egg. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think, yeah, the, there it wasn't... It was a relief. The, it was a relief to, to finally get that last shot. But by that stage, it was... Um, uh, I think we were more concerned about finishing the edit by that that point in time and then starting the, the sound mix. And, and I think there's been... Similarly, there's been... Uh, in that there was no kind of great um, sense of relief as, as the more the shooting blocks accumulated... Um, well, I dyed was... my hair though because I had such a sense of relief for for well, yeah, there, Polly. There was that um, bright red. That's true. Exercise yourself. Yeah, I had to exercise myself for mm. Polly, so I dyed my hair bright red, and then um, I went into our local cafe, and there was a new barista there, and and he was like, "Oh, I forgot your brother's name," and I was like, "Oh God, I've got to dye my hair immediately because can't, <laughs> can't have a ginger couple without them apparently being related." So yeah. I went back mm. blonde. <laughs> huge Harry Potter fans. Yeah. Um, yeah, so the, there was no kind of real sense of relief at, at, at any stage. It was just like, okay, we've got to get this next thing done and then we've got to move on to this. It's just had to be kind of relentless in terms of its schedule. Yeah. And at the same time trying to fit in pay, paid work around all of that as well. But we have tried to kind of mark the little victories mm. along the way, whether it's finishing shooting and then having a little wrap drink or finishing the edit and having the test screening so we could see how the film looks or then finishing pretty much finishing the sound mix and having the cast and crew screening, uh, which the, um, the lovely manager, Zach Hepburn of the Aster, let us have there. So we had our cast and crew screening there, which was that's very awesome. special. Because like, yeah, that's my favourite right. cinema in the world. Um, yeah. So apparently, that was very special. Apparently that was the first time, I, I could be wrong, but he said it was the first time that uh, a film that had been shot at the Aster screened at the Aster which was a nice little yeah. thing wow. to have. That's very cool. Mm. Yeah. So you had these little celebrations along the way. Uh, obviously, like one of the biggest ones for us was the Santa Barbara, the 
Film Festival because uh, we had Greg, me, Shelley, uh, our edit, Ariel, um, who else? Lloyd and Rowan, two of the actors, and, and Nick. Nick Pollock, the composer. And we all went over as a little posse. And it's just like this little group of Australians behaving Steve, badly. Steve. And Steve Azakis was there. Mm. And it was just the best. That mm. was fantastic. Mm. It was so special because it was so weirdly removed from, from Melbourne and Australia. And we're just on the other side of the world with this little film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Did you feel like when you had that um, sort of test screening, did you feel like you had something or were you, were you so in it that you were kind of a bit numb to no, it? No, I remember the first time we felt that when it wasn't even the test screening. It mm. was, uh, we well, were pushing for a festival deadline um, and we asked them if we could submit at a certain time and, and we ha- were only at rough cut at that point and they said, well, if you're going to show us something, you need to show us in the next four days. I'm like, holy shit. So Greg and Ariel edited around the clock for four days, like, to get it into a semi-good shape. Yeah, got it from rough cut to rough assembly in about three days, which was, I do not recommend doing that. Yeah, well. Mm. Ariel slept at our house every night on the couch and, um, you know, I'd make sure they had dinner, but I wasn't as involved in the edit because I just can't be. I'm too... I'd be looking at my thimbles mostly. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, And so, yeah, that morning that we had to go submit it to this festival... Um, I had to wake them up at seven o'clock in the morning so that we could watch the film just to make sure there were no problems. And we had to all of a sudden re-export it or something like that. So we, you know, got them coffee, got some croissants, sat down, watched the the film and I just like burst into tears at the end of it. I was like, we made a fucking film, you guys. We made a film. And then Still a lot of work. After Still that. a lot of work to go, but yeah. it was that first feeling of going, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of mm. what we've created. And it's not a big budget film with lots of special effects and, and all that kind of stuff, but we're proud of our film. It's, it's a little film that has something to say and for the experience that we have at the moment, the skills and experience and that we have and the time and, and money that we had, I think we did a really good job too. It was like a little pat on the back. Go us. Yay. <laughs> was that at the time or is that now? Like. <laughs> No, at the time, oh, like, right. you know, yeah, yeah. Well, now I think we've exceeded those expectations yeah. mm. massively in getting a cinema release and getting into all the festivals we've gotten into and mm. getting such good reviews and publicity. Like it's definitely snowballed a lot this year, but mm. last year, just watching that first cut of the film and just going, well, whatever happens from here, I'm really proud of the film that we've made together. Mm. And you, you guys are self-distributing the film. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. So uh, that, um, that particular cut, we eventually screened, uh, well, actually the, the final cut. Um, so we kept on editing for a couple more um, uh, months after that. And we didn't get into that that festival that we were cramming for. And I think that was kind of like when we, we went through some pretty dark times around this time last year where we were like, when it will where or when is this film ever going to get seen? And which is, I think was really beneficial for now because we've been through all of those really dark, dark moments of, of not of thinking, have we created something that no one is ever going to see to be in this situation now where it is getting a cinema release, even self-distributed. I think we appreciate it so, so much more and we're so much more grateful for it. Um, whereas I think maybe in hindsight, we did have this idea that we would, um, uh, we would make this film and surprise distributors and funding bodies and, and just, pop it on the, on the, on the table and go, here's a film. Eh? Eh? <laughs> and, um, doesn't work like that. <laughs> doesn't, doesn't really work that li- like that. And in some cases it, it almost felt like, um, the response was 
was more like, oh, you made a film. Oh, who told you you could do that? Because it's, I think people really want to be uh, in on the ground floor. Similarly, like we were talking about that whole pathway from film school, like people want to be backing a winner for, for many years. So They want to be invested in it. Yeah. Too. So we, we didn't have anyone who that we'd really um, made privy to, to the journey and up until that point, which was a, a, quite a roadblock to get through. And we screened at the um, Myth Marketplace private screenings for distributors last year both international and local. And what we kind of came up against uh, locally was that um, distributors liked the film. They really loved Alice in it, but they didn't know who she was. And being that proxy for you or I sitting on Netflix on a Friday night, scrolling through all of the the posters, they want someone that people are going to stop and say, oh, I like that person. They want a name, basically. And we didn't have a name, so the we were kind of told you've got to go off and get into major festivals, which at the time having just experienced our first pangs of rejection was quite demoralizing. Um, But we were, there was one American sales agent who really wanted to, who was kind of the first champion and they, they signed the film um, uh, to uh, rep internationally. That was Shoreline. And since then they've, they've really kind of championed the film internationally and that got us, over the line to to get into Santa Barbara, which I think then led to um, uh, the Sydney Film Festival championing it here, which has been great. Mm. Mm. It's incredible. Yeah. So, um, but... It's been an unusual journey for, for in terms of distribution and self-distribution now. Mm. Um, And certainly a lot more work than if you had a distributor, but on the upside, there's no one standing in between us and the box office with mm. uh, Palace, which is, I mean, if we make anything, then there's a, a much better split for, for us mm. to be able to look at eventually paying off all our deferred contracts, which would be really cool. Mm. I think it was, yeah, it was kind of when we announced the Santa Barbara um, Film Festival that we were going over for there that um, I guess via Facebook it filtered back to um, the people that Alice used to work with at Palace and they knew that she'd been making a feature film and they were all of a sudden really curious to see it. Well, they'd been curious for a while, but I really didn't want to show them a work in progress and I didn't want them to come to a test screening. I mean, I did Mm. have some colleagues from Palace come and check out the the test screening stage because I trust their opinion as well. But you can only have people watch a film or read a script for the first time once and I really wanted to make a good impression on it. So it wasn't until we got into Sydney Film Festival that I sent a DCP over to Palace for them to, to watch it at one of their morning screenings. Um, and like in all honesty, I was expecting a pat on the head, good work, what are you going to do with it? <laughs> and both uh, Benjamin, the CEO of the company, and uh, Kim Patalis, the head of programming, contacted me separately to say that they'd support us and said, you know, you can tell distributors they'll be warmly welcomed by Palace. Um, which we took to distributors and we did try with quite a few and they were all interested in more like home entertainment, but they just didn't think there was legs for it for, for theatrical. It was interesting. Yeah. Some of the distributors who I had, they might who, be right. Well, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> time will tell, but yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, some, some of the distributors who had told us to go off and get into festivals. And when we came back and we were in uh, Sydney and we were in MIF and we'd gone to Santa Barbara and started doing more festivals as well. Um, they were the. They then questioned whether we would have an audience beyond those festivals, like because we were screening at festivals. Maybe that would be our entire cinema-going audience. So, and yeah, having 
even with that endorsement from Palace, um, it was yeah, it was quite surprising to us that um, that this they still wouldn't um, wouldn't back us. And so, like Alice said, we were tr- it was like we were trying to put someone in between us and the exhibitor when we didn't need someone between us and the exhibitor. No, because we are kind of uniquely positioned with this. Yeah, space. and Film Victoria had just announced this um, new grant for independent feature films without a distributor um, for 25 grand to help with uh, putting the film into cinemas. And so we applied for that and we're just very fortunate to get it because that has really, um, that's covered all of our publicity and and, uh, print advertising. Yeah, so it's been like, I would say half of our budget for uh, getting it into cinemas, which is really good. So, you know, that's a, a whole lot more that Greg and I don't have to personally raise. So we've put in about the same as well, just to be open with figures. Because, mm-hmm. um, you know, you've got to pay for publicists, you've got to pay for drives, distribution posters, flyers, newspaper ads, uh, insurance for the film, which is expensive when you mentioned Jared Leto so many times. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, like little things like that that just add up. You know, and we don't have the marketing budget of a normal film. So, of course, we've had to go really hard on social media as well. So, I mean, it'd be really interesting to see how it goes this weekend. It is like a, a people-pleasing movie. So, you know, and we've tried to get the word out there and we've given ourselves every best opportunity for success. But getting people to go to the cinemas is really hard. So you kind of have to lower your expectations just in case as well. But... Um, you know, I hope people do come to the cinema. I hope people do support Australian film. And if not ours, then something like Ali's Wedding or Killing Ground or The Amateur Project or All for One. Like there's a lot of Australian films in cinemas right now, which is fantastic. Mm. You know, Ali's Wedding did fantastically over its opening weekend. So it's still got incredibly strong sessions for the next week. Yeah, I, was, I think I saw he, he, uh, Osama posted it was number one at like 18, 18. cinemas or something across yeah. the country. Which and he's phenomenal. such a champ, man. Like, because, yeah. you know, we've only met him once at MIF, but we've, because we went to Sydney together, MIF, BIF, like all these festivals. They have been so incredibly supportive of us. Like, um, we do have our home entertainment with Madman as well. So they've, you know, they've got a vested interest in it. But Osama doesn't. And he has been so supportive. The night that they won the, the Age Critics Award at MIF, he was on uh, social media putting up a video of our poster at the cinemas saying, if you go see one film this spring, make it, that's not me. And then he'll flip the camera over to Ali's wedding and say, if you see two films this year, <laughs> you know, and it's been this really lovely camaraderie between our films. Even on their opening night uh, on Thursday last week, he put up a video of our trailer playing before Ali's wedding saying, that's not me out next week. Like he's... Like that's, I think, been really heartening for us mm. because in such a small marketplace as Australia, if there's two comedies, usually the default position would be to look over your shoulder and go, well, what are they doing here? There's only room for one of us. And the, I th- the it's a cliche, but the rising tide does lift all ships because we're trailering before Ali's wedding. People are seeing that trailer. If they, if we're yeah, just more saying, people see that film, more people see our trailer. Like, and more people see that film, more people see our trailer. But not just that. But if they if they go and see Ali's wedding, they're pretty much guaranteed to have a great experience at the cinema. So that's an experience that they go they walk out of that experience going, why are we doing this more often? Yeah. Let's come again next week, or let's go in two weeks' time. And I think that's what's really overlooked that in in Australians, uh, the film industry is that, yeah, if, if people are going to see one Australian film that they really enjoy, then they're more likely to go and see another one. 
And so I think that's yeah. that's the kind of industry that we w- want to be a part of going forward if we are fortunate enough to keep making stuff is to be not just championing our film in its release week but championing the other Australian films that you could go and see instead. And the other indie films that are still trying to find their own pathway as well like uh, Romy Trow's film What If It Works or uh, Zelos films like that that are still Lazy finding Bones, uh, yeah, Lazy yeah, Bones frisky. that are still frisky, frisky you know yeah. which is um, apparently fantastic so I'd really like mm. to see that but they're still finding their pathway as well so hopefully our film uh, getting a cinema release will mean that their films get more of a look in for theatrical as well so helping each other out and supporting each other on social media it sounds like a really small thing but i think it's a, a really easy thing to do to, mm. to show that support what's a like really exactly what's a like or a retweet like people are so caught up in like what like their own social media brand of like oh what does it mean what does it mean if i retweet this does that mean i endorse it just someone said to Gregles a few years ago one of our friends said you're really easy with the likes and it's like well, who cares like fuck it have a like like does it matter mm. you know just showing a little thumbs up and supporting people it doesn't mean anything it's, uh, it's well, it means you're supporting them it means you're yeah. supporting them but to you to you I mean it's just a like uh, whatever uh, you know you like their thing so you may as well but for mm. them it's 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 a big deal yeah mm. exactly yeah uh, I was listening to uh, Pete Holmes podcast um, you made it weird he was talking about people who wear as a badge of honour oh, I'm, I'm a hard laugh like it takes a lot to make me laugh and it's like mm. I'd rather I'd much rather be someone who will just laugh at anything like you know mm. and i think it's a similar thing with social media with liking and mm. and sharing content it's like we should be championing a, a, a culture and a community of inclusiveness not mm. exclusiveness not yeah. like us and them or us and against them and i think osama i mean his film is all about mm. you know creating a culture of inclusiveness and that's what his whole journey to this point has been and yeah i think it's amazing that we can be at a point where this sort of stuff is uh, is is happening, um, and you guys mentioned you know your film is opening this week uh, Thursday mm-hmm. um, at Palace Cinemas. You guys are doing a Q and A. We are. We're doing an uh, intro before this session at Palace Westgarth at six thirty PM, which is really special for me because I used to work there. So seven years ago, I was the co-assistant manager with <laughs> Zach Hepburn, who works at the Astor. Uh, then after that, we're heading to Kino to do a Q and A after the seven PM session that night as well, and then we embark on a Q and A tour that goes to Sydney on Friday, Adelaide on Saturday, Canberra on Sunday, and then back to Melbourne on Monday to do one at Palace Brighton Bay after the six thirty PM session, I believe, as well. Um, but then there's also just a bunch of other sessions every day at all those cinemas and more. Like the, we're also screening in Brisbane at Palace Centro and um, the Chevelle Cinema in uh, Sydney and Palace Norton Street. Yeah. And that's kicking off this Thursday, the 7th of September 2017. Correct. <laughs> Got all that thought I'll, out. I'll give a, yeah, I was going to say, what year is it? What? <laughs> yeah, have you been watching Twin Peaks? No. Okay. No, sorry. Right. That's what, that's in there for the Twin Peaks. Maybe rants. cut that out. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> they can stay in there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, thank you so much, guys, for coming and, and chatting with me and sharing mm. your story. I finish all of my conversations with one question, which is what makes you silly individually or collectively? Actually, let's go with both. Jeez. Oh, Where do I start? I think it's this. <laughs> um. Uh, probably dumb pronunciations of, of words. Oh God, that just sounds, I, I, I hate myself saying that. <laughs> no, but he's true. He'll go, oh, do you want to go I to the movies really like, in North Coast? 
Right. <laughs> I really love, um, yeah, Toast of London, the way he does all of his weird... Um, Matt Berry, even going back to his other stuff that he used to do with um, Snuffbox. He just has this weird pronunciation of everything and I just... Uh, I love to weirdly pronounce words, but surely we've got um, something sillier than that. I can't think of anything silly. Mine would be really sappy and say Greggles makes me um, silly because he encourages that side of me and I think he makes me a lot less self-serious uh, and karma and, and well, karma kind of contradicts the silly, but I think you <laughs> encourage my sense of humour. Mm. So I'm going to go with the spew in your face option. Yeah. I like the spew in your face option. Yeah. I think, I don't know, silly things. What else makes me silly? I just, I like recounting funny urination and uh, poo stories as well. <laughs> I do, don't I? Oh, like, can I, can I tell my bad gastro story from last year? I really uh, want this out absolutely. there somewhere. It was really sure, good. So, <laughs> oh, it's a really good one. Uh, <laughs> sure it's a really shitty story. It's so shitty. So last year I had gastro... Uh, and I was traveling from Canberra to, I mean, um, Melbourne to Canberra. Everyone was already, they were on their way to the cinemas. They were going to go and see the <laughs> oh, film. Oh, this so. is a good one though. It's really funny. Gregles is killing himself. <laughs> He's shitting himself right now. Um, anyway, I had really bad gastro. And uh, at one point I, I ran to the bathroom at my parents' house to spew. But I chose the wrong end. And it came out the other end. And so I called out. Fade up the music. <laughs> I shut my pants and he came in and then he was helping me clean up. My poor mum walked in the lounge room and like, I mean, walked in the bathroom a few minutes later and I'm just standing there in a skivvy wearing nothing from the waist down, showering myself whilst Greggles cleans my shit off the ground saying, look away. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, I think poo and wee stories make me silly. I was kind of of hoping that you'd say your mum walked in and you'd say, that's not me. (laughs) That would have been funnier. So was... In a shaggy voice. <laughs> In a shaggy, shaggy voice. Shaggy voice, yeah. It's not me. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. Thanks, Alistair. <laughs>